Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Brought to you by Visa Wellington on a Plate. Indeed, this podcast is brought to you by the wonderful team at Wellington on a Plate. And for this year's festival, I'm delighted to have been asked to host a panel of well-known Wellington chefs from the heady dining days of the 80s and 90s. We're going to take a look back at the influences that were driving the hospitality industry at that time. There was quite a heavy European influence because many of them were opened by Europeans. And I think that French style was still pervading our consciousness. Chef and food writer Grant Allen will join us shortly with some fabulous memories from Wellington during the 80s. But first, a little crispy bit for you. Crispy bits. The Marine Stewardship Council is launching New Zealand's first ever Sustainable Seafood Week this week to celebrate the leadership of MSC Certified Fisheries and with an aim to empower Kiwis to choose sustainable seafood to ensure we have seafood for generations to come. Anne Gabriel is head of the Marine Stewardship Council. I asked her what their research shows with regards to how important it is to New Zealanders that they participate in a sustainable future for fish and seafood. I think Kiwi's thing, you know, having seafood into generations to come, protecting our oceans, um, it's right up on their radar, Kelly. It's uh, it's a cost that's very close to their hearts. And that's not a surprise, obviously, because New Zealand has, you know, the fourth largest marine jurisdiction in the world. It's part of the Kiwi identity uh, for recreational purposes as well. And it holds a sense of pride. So the GlobeScan research that we did and commissioned across 23 countries with over 28,000 consumers. Um, it's shown that, you know, both issues of environment and pollution are right up there together with concerns such as terrorism, uh, which is very interesting, obviously. Mm. I think post-pandemic, probably that would be right up there as well. In New Zealand, I think it's certainly showing that climate change is the most concerning um, environmental threat to our oceans. Um, 84% of Kiwis are saying, you know, they will take the right action to protect um, our oceans, to make sure that we've got seafood into the future. A whopping 89% is saying, you know, when they're out there shopping for seafood or uh, dining or consuming seafood, they want to make sure that they're making the right sustainable option for the longer term. So it's right up there, I think, in terms of New Zealanders being very concerned about the choices they make. And the mechanisms like the Marine Stewardship Council, I think, fit right in in uh, fulfilling these expectations. And what exactly is the core purpose of the Marine Stewardship Council? Over 3 billion people around the world rely on seafood as the main source of protein in the world. Um, it's one of the lowest carbon footprints for animal protein in the world. Um, you know, the communities uh, around the world that depend on it for their livelihood and sustenance. But obviously, you know, with growing population, I mean, we've seen some staggering numbers. We've got... By 2015, they're projecting the population to grow by 9.7 billion. So a whole lot of this, you know, growing population, overfishing, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, the impact of climate change in our oceans, a whole lot of that's putting a lot of pressure um, on Mother Nature. So the Marine Stewardship Council was established about 22 years ago, really to address the issue of overfishing. It's a collective endeavor. It's a lot of multi-stakeholders coming from government, the conservation organizations, the industry, you know, um, brands and the private sector um, to make sure they're coming together and ensuring that fishing is done sustainably, but at the same time, there's a demand for seafood that's coming from sustainable sources. 
This is the first time that you've started a sustainable week for New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. We're very excited about launching Sustainable Seafood Week uh, next week, commencing October the 12th. And really, it's, it's a celebration of the fisheries in New Zealand that have achieved MSC certification. You know, it's, um, it's commendable to the leadership shown by the government, by the industry and the environmental organizations in New Zealand. Today, we have over half of uh, fish landings by volume in New Zealand that certified to this international uh, world-class science-based standard to the MSC. So the Sustainable Seafood Week is, first of all, really to celebrate that achievement. But we also want to ignite an urgency in terms of, um, you know, every person within um, the different stakeholder groups coming together and playing their part for the good of our oceans for the longer term. Mm. Many people know about the blue tick system that you've developed, which is um, is world-renowned, but uh, for those who don't, can you just explain to me how that works? MSC is comprised of a two-part program, so to speak. We've got the fishery standard, which is a robust science-based um, standard that um, assesses fisheries in terms of their stock levels, healthy stock levels, the impact of their fishing on the general ecosystem environment, marine habitats and the coral reef. So while the MSC provides the standard, the auditing process itself is done by third party um, certification bodies. So there's a there's an impartiality um, to that process. But to allow brands and organizations to ensure that when they're buying seafood, it's coming from a sustainable certified fishery, we also have what we call a traceability program along the supply chain. So once companies and brands have gone through that audit along the supply chain, they can then, and if they're successful, they can then choose to don the MSC Bluefish stick on the end product. And so when consumers are shopping out there, while the process itself is extremely complex and rigorous and robust, all the consumers need to look for really is the bluefish stick on these products. Um, and then they can be obviously assured and trust the fact that it's coming from a sustainable certified source. And what are some of the New Zealand brands that have this bluefish stick? At the moment, we have Sea Lord, um, obviously trailblazing the environment in New Zealand with um, a whole load of uh, frozen chilled products bearing the bluefish stick um, in all the local supermarkets. We've also got PAMS um, uh, with a range of seafood products with the bluefish stick. We've got other um, foreign brands like John West as well in their canned tuna range. Kiwis uh, that travel abroad um, and do find the eco-label and a range of products would have a sense of pride to see that many of the New Zealand seafood are found around the world and come from certified sustainable fisheries on a wide range of them. You're talking major brands here, though. Will it ever be possible for the consumer when going into restaurants and things like that to be be able to see something like a blue tick? Um, I hope sooner than later. Um, I think, look, the, the, the current pandemic was is, is a time that's shaken all of us and um, rightfully been uh, will continue to preoccupy our, our, our minds to keep ourselves safe. Um, and I want to acknowledge, I think, the, the hardship that the, the fishing community around the world and certainly in New Zealand um, have gone through with um, with the pandemic and its impact on us. I do hope that when we emerge from this crisis, um, because sustainability is at the heart of everything we do, that we will start seeing the urgency of um, ensuring that we continue um, our journey down this path. So along that route, I, I look forward to continuing the engagement with, you know, as you say, um, supermarkets, brands, 
restaurants, fishmongers, um, and support them um, in the MSC journey to, to have an array of um, MSC certified seafood offered uh, within their destinations. Because mm, I would think also that um, it would be amazing if some of the smaller artisan fisheries that fish to order um, and then supply Absolutely. restaurants could be, could be recognised in that way as well. Absolutely. I think, look, small-scale fisheries account for about 90% of fishes around the world. 50% of our global seafood catch comes from, from human consumption comes from small-scale fisheries. So I think there's a general perception that because MSC is this international gold standard for sustainable fishing, that there's this perception that we only are adopted by large commercial fisheries. Nothing is further from the truth there, really, because the MSC, in fact, works and promotes sustainability for all types and sizes of fishery. Today, we've got about 16% um, of MSC certified fisheries coming from small-scale fisheries. But if you think about just beyond certification, as we know, a lot of these small-scale fisheries are also coming from developing nations. So the MSC works in the pre-certification space with them, you know, whether it comes to things like funding, capacity building, training, and tools. A lot of this is going to take a few years towards certification, but we are really focused on the longer term. So I would say the small scale fisheries and the work we do in that space is of ultimate priority for the MSC and will continue to be. Crispy. The first New Zealand Sustainable Seafood Week will be held from October 12th to 18th. Head over to msc.org for more info. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Visa Wellington on a Plate. Chef and food writer Grant Allen is the man behind a series of dinners this month at Visa Wellington on a Plate that will see the reunion of an incredible group of chefs including Martin Bosley of Brasserie Flip, Lois Daish of Brooklyn Bar and Grill, Jeff Kennedy from Toad Hall, Grant Kinnear from Central Park Deli and James and Julie Clark from Clark's Library Cafe to reinvent some of those dishes from favourite restaurants and chefs in Wellington during the 80s. Now, I'm told that Wellington had established itself as New Zealand's culinary capital at that time, so I had to ask Grant if that was absolutely true. <laughs> well, of course I'm going to say yes. No, <laughs> I think that it probably was. Um, and I think that the reason being is that Wellington, um, you know, is the heart of politics, it certainly was then, um, a lot of Corporate, most corporate offices would have had their um, head offices in the capital. We had all the diplomatic corps. I think that the population of Wellington was probably, you know, considerably um, sort of more cosmopolitan and made up of people who were maybe coming to Wellington uh, for careers and things. But um, also Wellington's geography um, where the city is kind of surrounded by hills, it, it's it, Wellington's a great little city because it, it's sort of like it is a city, but it's a bit like a village in a way, in that everyone cross connects and crosses paths. So there's a kind of intensity of city life in a relatively small parameter if that makes sense. Mm. So give me a snapshot of the restaurants that were making waves back then. What were the sort of places that you were going to? Um, probably prior to the late 70s, um, really the only restaurants that people would, or the only restaurants that were around were 
what we called licensed restaurants as opposed to BYO that came later. Um, they were um, quite formal. Uh, they were probably relatively expensive. It was a time that you kind of only went out for special occasions or you know maybe business meetings. Um, and uh, most of them were in a way, you know, in the style of a French restaurant um, or what was perceived to be a French restaurant. Many of them were run by Europeans. And so uh, I don't want to say they were haute cuisine because they weren't really, but they were very formal, very service, service very trolleys, you know, kind of flaming crepes, is it? The spinach at the table. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. spinach salad. Yeah. Yeah. They were kind of quite, you know, I'm not rarefied, but I mean, again, people didn't eat out so often. So, and they were wanting, I guess, when they went to those places, and that was the formality or the theatre that they wanted. So, once the uh, legislation changed in New Zealand that allowed BYO, bring your own wine, to a restaurant, it allowed the opening up of, I think, yeah, smaller places, more casual places. Mm. Um, a little bit more relaxed, and it was possible to open something relatively small. I mean, we had 36 seats, so that's probably kind of the average of the style of thing that we would do a uh, restaurant that we were involved in. Well, it was not so pretentious, I suppose. What was the restaurant that you were in at that stage? So, I was at Pierre's, which opened in 1976 um, by Pierre Meyer and another partner, and we were. BYO, obviously based on uh, French bistro style, I guess, because of Pierre's you know, background and, and um, nationality. We literally had a blackboard menu. I think we had three appetizers, uh, a soup, one entree, four main courses, I think three desserts and a cheese. And that was the extent of the menu. What were some of the things that would have been on the menu at that stage? Well, okay, so terrines, pâtés, um, avocados. <laughs> um, but not smashed. Not smashed, no. <laughs> they were filled with chopped hard-boiled egg and chives and a beautiful vinaigrette. Of course, simply. yeah. Okay, um, and in those days they were called avocado pears. <laughs> so... Um, Seafood, uh, very um, simple preparation. I mean, all the dishes were, again, quite simply put together because of the, um, you know, a la carte cooking. Um, again, I think our secret was that we put a lot of investment in terms of the building blocks, the stocks, and the uh, food maize and things behind. Um and desserts were, I'm just trying to think now. Oh, the probably most famous one for us was kiwi fruit ice cream, which oh. I did try the other day again, well, a few months ago again, and it was absolutely vile. But anyway, we lots <laughs> of the stuff. And that was very sort of chic, I think. It was you know, sort of a, a first beginning nod to New Zealand ingredients. Um well, not really, but they were all New Zealand ingredients. But, you know, it was a bit... Um, Being you know, uniquely New Zealand, yeah. 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 So I think, again, those restaurants, including ours, um, there was quite a heavy European influence because many of them were opened by Europeans. And I think that French 
sort of uh, style was still pervading our consciousness in that, you know, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand at the time, you know, we were still a very young country and I don't think we'd had any concept of or any acknowledgement of, you know, what is New Zealand food. Mm, I mean, mm. our, our food was, you know, our home food was basically colonial cooking, you know, pretty yeah. much as you get in Australia, South Africa, other British colonies. Um, you know, obviously based on a, a plentiful supply of meat and dairy and, um, you know, probably fresh vegetables because pretty much, you know, everyone had a home garden. Uh, but I think there's still, there was still a bit of a cultural cringe about New Zealand. And so anything that was French or foreign was fabulous mm. up, you know, because, <laughs> because that's how we thought. <laughs> Yes, I think we had the same problem going on in Australia, actually. Yeah. So it was a very similar story in I that way. The difference between Australia and New Zealand, I think, in terms of you know advancing their own bit more own star, was that Australia had the benefit of you know quite large um, groups of uh, Greeks and Italians immigrating who you know became part of the food scene, and so it sort of spilled out a bit further than New Zealand, who were pretty, you know, any immigrant groups were fairly small and and uh, self-contained. So you didn't get that kind of spillover. That happened a lot later in New Zealand, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, yeah, I think that there was just no real, most of our, um, you know, early settlers were primarily, you know, English, Scottish, Irish. So was a pretty strong stream of, um, you know, Great Britain coming yeah. through. <laughs> um, funny enough, I was doing a, bit, a little bit of research, and uh, the, you know, obviously the Chinese were here very early with the gold mines, but again, remained a very, very insular community. But one of the uh, restaurants noted in the thing I was reading that in um, 1948 in Wellington, the Shanghai restaurant opened, and that was the first restaurant to cater to non-Chinese. Wow. But it would have been a very watered-down, yeah, westernised yeah. menu, wouldn't it? Interesting. And yet again, um, when, you know, around the time I'm talking about the 70s, um, probably earlier, one of the smartest restaurants in town was Chinese restaurant, and the name has just slipped my mind, but it was very chic and it was very much, you know, business and you know, fine dining. And that would have been terribly exotic, wouldn't it, in those days? Well, yeah, it, it, yeah, but it was a very established restaurant yeah. in terms of, you know, all the population. It was kind of, yeah, it was a smart place to go. There was a lot of black lacquer and, in a sense, maybe not watered down, but, you know, definitely Cantonese, yeah, probably based Cantonese food. But, yeah, well, again, a bit like the French, it's like one of the typical French dishes, you know, pate, blah, 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 blah. Uh, same with the Chinese. You had the identifiable um, name dishes that every restaurant would have and so that the, you know. The average punter would, would yeah, see something that they could recognise. What was the hospo scene like then? Was it terribly competitive for chefs in those days? Um, I don't think it was. I think it was actually quite collegiate. Um, I think that because um, it was a small, you know, it's, as I said before, Wellington's a bit of a, you know, it's a city, but it's also a small village in a way. I think it was actually quite a um, collegiate scene. 
it was before the days of celebrity chefs. So, I mean, it was just everyone was doing what they were doing. You know, it was sort of like... Um, so you weren't all rock stars? No, no. We should have been, but we <laughs> We were, but we didn't. Really it's know. a shame you missed out on all of that, isn't it? <laughs> no, I, there was sort of none of that going on. And I, I just think that everyone was doing what they wanted, what they were doing and, and, you know, trying to do well. And I guess, you know, in those days, the competition was much less. So mm. got a bit more competitive as time went on. But everyone was probably making, yeah, you know, making a living not making a million. I mean, I can't believe that we actually opened for 20 years and uh, or 18, 20 years and uh, not so much the last few years because we were dealing with the crash. But, yeah, we made a living. Were you in that one restaurant for that long? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's the restaurant I ever worked in because I, I didn't train as a chef. I bought into the restaurant, learned on the ground or in the kitchen, so basically learned to cook in, I guess, the French style. I uh, was in the kitchen for eight or so years and then moved to the front of the house, yeah. Oh, God. So you were in front of a house. That would be dangerous. <laughs> Excuse me. I was a shy boy then. <laughs> I loved the front of the house. Cause, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you did. A really interesting uh, clientele. I mean, uh, you know, we, we were kind of, um, you know, we had all the politicians. We had all the priests gallery we had all the who's who at the zoo around town we had the diplomats so it was seen as quite a chic place to do to go um unfortunately it was pre-social media because my god uh some of the things that um you know the walls could talk cliche although in uh, that works both ways grant it's also probably fortunate that there was no social media because a lot of it would come back to haunt you and they, well, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we'd have the, I mean, literally, we'd have the, you know, ed- paper editors in there at lunchtime with their girlfriends and there with their family at night. And, mm. you know, and I remember Winston Peters as a very young politician sitting there in his tan cowboy boots. So it was, yeah, it was a funny, it was very funny. Very and interesting was- time. Obviously, this event um, at Wellington on a Plate, which is, uh, I must add, almost sold out, which is terrific. Yeah. <laughs> Why? This has obviously got something to do with your you know, connection to the past and your passion for all of those yeah. stories. So why are you doing it? Well, I kind of talked to Sarah a few times, uh, a, you know, a few events as things have gone on. Oh, it would be great to do a bit of a, you know, a, a revival because there's still a very strong connection amongst all those people who were around from those times in Wellington and you know some of them are uh, you know Jeff Kennedy's still out there on the floor you know it, it is still very close um you know again that collegiate connection so mm. this year with no you know for uh, overseas uh stars, mm. she said well this is the year to do it so basically got in touch with the kind of old mates and, you know, let's do it. And everyone kind of went, yes. And I think as much as it gets, just going to be a bit of a reunion because I'm hoping that we're going to see a lot of our old customers there. Wouldn't um, that be amazing? That would be so wonderful. To, yeah. to, who, who are some of the chefs that are, that are working okay. on it with you? So basically um, there's myself, Piers, um, Jeff Kennedy, who – uh, who's been through numerous um, 
incarnations, but at the moment has set up prefab, uh, which uh, he, he also set up Lafare Coffee, you know, but he was right back there at the beginning with a little place called Toad Hall, um, you know, very cafe, more cafe than restaurant, but he's just been part of the scene forever. Lois Daish, of course, who probably most people would know more well as the listener, you know, long-time listener columnist. But she, again, was right there at the beginning and then went through various stages. Uh, Grant Kinnear, who opened um, Central Park Deli, that was a little bit later moving into the kind of cafe coffee culture starting to move in. Um, Martin Bosley, who um, originally, well, he's probably most identified with Flip, which was a very um, amazing brasserie. Again, that was kind of a step up again from the old BYO, because after the BYO thing, then people kind of probably realised that there's money in booze. Uh, so it all kind of melded, you know, you could be BYO, but you could be licensed. And really, if you had any sense by that stage, um, you'd want to be licensed because, in a sense, that was the only place that you really made any money. Either that or you'd have to whack so much corkage on it that um, it wasn't worth being BYO anymore. Yeah, the whole point was to try and create an environment where you could take a bottle of wine and sit down and, and eat some decent food. And, uh, and in fact, I think at the beginning we didn't even charge corkage. I mean, we did on, but yeah, it wasn't like that situation now where I think you can go somewhere and take your wine if you want to pay $25 to get the top taken out. And then Julie, uh, who Julie Clark, who now is still up and running with Floridas and a bakery. That her and James started something in Rosalie. Again, more a cafe bakery, but they're all kind of that period of time. I'm excited to talk more to the ladies about this because it must have been yeah. quite an incredible thing for them, both very strong characters, but to mm. have been in professional kitchens where it was yeah. such a male-dominated space. Yeah, although we always had a woman in the kitchen. You know, the places I'm talking about were less structured, Mm. less formal so we weren't running a, a you know a brigade in the kitchen yeah. and they were smaller so everybody had to do everything really um which is pretty much what the hospitality industry has become isn't it really yeah. unless you're in working in a big group situation yeah. yeah yeah and again um i think that as more probably new zealanders uh, you know kiwis open the places i mean we weren't kind of imbued with that whole you know, hierarchy of kitchens, you know, hierarchy of positions. I mean, one, there just wasn't enough people to set that up. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, think, I'm just trying to think. Uh, Margot Henderson, who's now in London, um, she worked with us for quite a while. So she was working at Pierre's? Yeah, yeah. She went on to other places, but yeah, she had loved Margot. She was hilarious. <gasps> it wasn't really, really heavily male dominated then. That's that's no, quite interesting. I think the atmosphere of the places, uh, the kitchens, were again, you know, kind of they these smaller places had a bit of a family feel, you know, because you, um, you know, it was quite a, a, a close working environment mm. and. I mean, I remember at one stage earlier on looking around the restaurant and, you know, we had 14 different nationalities in the restaurant. You know, I mean, that included part-timers as well as full-timers. But, you know, so you used to kind of get a nice 
range of people. I think that sort of translates into the now, though, doesn't it, Grant? Because yeah. when you look around kitchens now and when you talk yeah. to hospitality teams, it it is a family. Yeah. I think less women were training, you know, formally training mm. as chefs in the, um, you know, politics, uni techs, uh, where the training went on. But because, I mean, again, those courses were based on, um, you know, British system. It was essentially British hotel cooking, which was totally irrelevant to the actuality of what was going on in New Zealand at that stage anyway. Yeah. I guess what we were doing was more real or relevant than putting aspect over vegetables that they were being taught at college. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And so are you allowed to tell me yet what's, what will be on the menu for Willie no. on a Plate? <laughs> or is it still a work in progress? No, no, the menu's still it. it is, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you the menu. Oh. Uh, it is very simple. I think it's very representative. <laughs> of the time and because nowadays we've got all these diets that weren't invented like gluten-free vegan non-dairy so we're having to come up we've come up with something that will translate across all those uh requirements uh the avocado yeah well what's (laughs) that's vegan vegetarian As long as you don't put feta cheese with it, you'll be right. No, 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 no. I mean, I just want to, at that point, I think a really good thing to also, when looking back, what's happened since the, you know, the late 70s, there's just been such an explosion of ingredients available and artisan producers. I mean, literally, when we opened, you could probably only buy a bunch of curly parsley in terms of herbs. You could only get well, iceberg lettuce, couldn't you? That was the only yeah, lettuce. Struggle to get mussels. Yeah. Ridiculous. Because <laughs> again, all based on export, they couldn't be bothered sending us quarter of a sack when they're sending sacks by the galore yeah. overseas. Uh, even stale cheese, the first cheese that are being made. Yeah, there were a lot of firsts. And, you know, Again, I can remember Pierre every day screaming at the suppliers. They must have been terrified of him. I'm not having this. Come back and get this fish. It's not right. <laughs> you know, and so I think the restaurants also probably had a role in uh, growing the hospitality mm. supply market. You know, up to that point, probably we, and then story, we're still at this point where we get mostly the second best, all the best stuff goes away. But I think also the hospo industry drives that thing of what can't we get here? Okay, well, we do want to be yep. able to have these, you know, amazing little tiny lettuce or, we, or, or these yep. herbs that we can't get. So yep. if there's a demand, then that gives people the there's opportunity to build a business out I mean, of it. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, if there's a demand, uh, you know, hopefully a supplier will be found. Like a friend of mine set up the first um, kind of fresh herb business in Wellington and, you know, she managed to make it work by finding growers and supplying the restaurants. Another friend set up, Pasta Fresca, which uh, Anna Tate Jamison and Dan came back from Italy. They bought a pasta machine. So they started supplying fresh pasta um, around the restaurants. I mean, prior to, we did, used to make our own. But, I mean, again, 
the demand as the demand grew, mm. little niche kind of things. But again, you know, there yeah, there was only, as I said, Evansdale was the first farmhouse in New Zealand, you know, kind of cheese that was I remember we got. Yeah, the palate was limited. And I think New Zealand's food is it's always going to be perceived as ingredient based and we have got great ingredients. But the variety was pretty small, you know, it was a small palette at that stage. And it, but it has just exponentially grown and expanded and you know, now we've got this fantastic artisan stuff going on. You'd also would have in those days had to have been very mindful of the palates of the customer as well, though, yeah. and the expectations of the customer That's, that wouldn't have been particularly I mean, adventurous. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, again, that's a role of a restaurant is to um, maybe take people places. Um, maybe it's babysits at a time. Mm. But creating a, a, a um, situation where, as a restaurant, you're maybe trusted and, and people have confidence in you, so you will push the boundaries out of it. My kind of food style or the restaurant that we had, it, it was pretty um classic i mean we kind of avoided the whole nouvelle cuisine phenomena we there was influences going on but certainly avoided getting into the weird and wonderful things that people were putting on plates which worked if you knew what you were doing but was an excuse for some pretty (laughs) (laughs) for chefs that didn't look in the end even still you know when i'm catering you can't beat a club sandwich and a sausage roll or a stroll. No matter what you do, people generally like the familiar and the predictable or, or you know, this, you know taste. They, they just want simple, tasty stuff. I won't, and I won't get you started on kiwi onion dip. Well, you can if you want to. No, but <laughs> I think when I talk to a few people about doing, you know, this event we're going to do in Wellington, they've gone, oh, it's... Yeah, it's kiwi onion dip, and it's you know this and this. And I said, no, it's not because we were actually doing bloody good food in those times. Not just us, you know, everyone who was involved. We were doing, you know, we we kind of moved beyond the cliches. We're putting out some pretty good food that I think would not still stand today, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it wasn't like full of kitsch crap. <laughs> it was, yeah, it wasn't just the cultural cringe, Grant. Being the wise, sophisticated, well-travelled, bad boy dinner party host that you are now, yeah. what do you miss from there? Is there anything that you can't have now that you that you could have back then? No, I think that we have, you know, in terms of what we could get, um, we're well, well catered for today and, you know, more and more um, beautiful things available to us um, and, you know, more and more specialist growers. So it feels like another lifetime, that restaurant. I don't really miss uh, anything about it. Having <laughs> said that, I do miss some of I mean, we had absolutely fun times and great times. And so, you know, it's a crazy life. Um, and so I miss that, but it wouldn't absolutely would not ever tempt me to open another one anyway what do you um, say to um young people that are in the industry now do you encourage them are you crazy (laughs) are you yeah no i say 
uh, you have to really know what you're doing in terms of running a business. You have to really know what you're doing in terms of being realistic about the business and, you know, really strict about um, your analysis within the business, you know, making sure your food costs are on target, you know, your wage costs are on target, um, making sure that you actually have an idea that is going to work you know, it has a realistic market appeal. It's not just necessarily about your dream. Wouldn't it be good to have this blah, blah, blah? You've got to be concerned about your location. Um, and, you know, who are your potential customers? I think it's got to be taken seriously because today, I mean, there's so many co- more costs involved than when yeah. we were doing it. I mean, the compliance costs are horrendous. I was just going to say, you'd, you'd also need to, to be understanding that you're probably not going to make a million dollars. Absolutely. <laughs> but also, I think that, you know, at some point, I think it's going to have, someone's going to have to take a jump and go from 40 to 60, because that might be $60 for a main course, because that might actually be closer to the reality of what it costs to um yeah. To serve that food. I mean, I, I was in one of our menus a few months ago. We were charging $28.50 for our most expensive main course, which was basically filler with a, you know, some kind, you know, red wine, shallot sauce, some vegetables, $28.50. And that was what, 30 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. And how much has everything zoomed? And we didn't, that wasn't resistant. You know, uh, that was acceptable. How much has everything, every other factor of the restaurant business raced ahead in that 30 years? Kind of shows you that the system's broken, doesn't it? Well, I think that this latest, you know, the uh, first lockdown that people, if you're running a business that can only survive seven, you know, on a weekly cycle, if you have to close for a month and you're doomed, it's not really a viable business model. And I think we've got too many restaurants, but that's another story as well, I suppose. Well, that's another story. And, of course, that's uh, that's one of the things that will come out of yeah. the whole situation is that there were too many restaurants to start with. and The butter only spreads so thin. That's right. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. You just see people's dreams go up in smoke. You see all this equipment that they've obviously been persuaded to buy brand new and fit out a kitchen just going for next to nothing. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's, that's another thing about, I guess, if you're starting a business, just be realistic. You don't need the best or the newest. You can create food from some pretty simple second-hand equipment to get started. And as always, Grant, with change comes opportunity. Totally. Well, listen, Mr. Allen, I am very much looking forward to uh, attending your event. Right. My biggest question really is, am I allowed to wear my hot pink lycra hot pants? I think that's an absolute must because you are going to be doing a little welcome. Uh, <laughs> oh, am I? Oh, okay. That's sure. You'll be rostered. <laughs> uh, then you can sit down and do it. And then I've actually got Barry Soper, who probably most people know as New Zealand parliamentary reporter. He was a cunt press gallery reporter in the days of the restaurant and very much a regular and he's going to do a little 10 minute um, about the times in Wellington the social and political times of that period well I'll look forward to it I can't wait 
I'll see you at Wellington. <laughs> Visa Wellington on a plate. Eat, drink and be welly. Terrific news for Grant, but unfortunately for you, Grant's late 80s Wellington dinner series is sold out. However, you might still be able to hear some terrific stories from Martin Bosley, Lois Daish, Julie Clark and Grant Allen at the Wellington Food Story Speaker Series presented by Te Papa. I'll be chatting with this incredible lineup of chefs on Wednesday, October 21st at 12 noon. It's a free event, but you do need to register, so head over to visawoap.com. Visa Wellington on a plate. Eat, drink and be welly. And that's it for this episode of Cuisine Bites. A brand new issue of our beautiful cuisine magazine is on shelves mid-October, so please do grab a copy if you don't already subscribe and help us to continue to tell our important New Zealand food story. You can follow us on social at Cuisine Magazine and you can follow me at Kelly Brett. Just make sure you spell Kelly with an I. And I'll see you back here in a week's time for another episode of Cuisine Bites. In fact, one of the most um, difficult times in the restaurant was when um, we had almost an entire female kitchen and um, women can be very territorial in kitchens. (laughs) Be very careful, Grant. Absolutely.